Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The most beautiful girl in New York City was, according to the judges of the contest that decided such matters, a dark-haired, blue-eyed young woman by the name of Olive Duffy. It was 1914, and with her newly minted title and all of the attention that came with it, Olive was on her way to fame and fortune. She worked first as a showgirl on Broadway before moving on to the silver screen, the public's newest and most exciting form of mass entertainment. Olive was a natural fit for the Hollywood set, a studio darling with both a foul mouth and a mischievous air. She seemed to be living out the fantasies of so many young girls. She got jobs, and eventually she got the man. Olive and John Pickford, one of the most eligible bachelors of the day, began carousing, partying, and gaining quite the reputation around the sets. They were madly in love, yes, but they were also wildly volatile, their pairing rife with a magnetic passion that bound them together, and seemingly endless passionate affairs that tore them apart. In September of 1920, Olive and Jack set sail for Paris. It was supposed to be a reconciliation of sorts, an attempt to quiet their quarrels and quell their tempers. Once they got to town, they checked into the Hotel Ritz and went off to explore the city. And there they drank and danced as the night ticked on, stumbling back to their room in the early morning hours. There's old wisdom that tells us that nothing good can happen at this liminal time between night and day. Some may beg to differ, but knowing what we know now, we might assume that our ill-fated couple might agree. Jack would later claim that he had already climbed into bed, half asleep and soaked in whiskey, when suddenly from the bathroom, Olive began to scream. In his haze, Jack stumbled out of bed and found Olive leaning against the counter holding a bottle. As he would recount later, she looked at him, pale with horror, and said, Oh my god, I'm poisoned. 
Allegedly, Olive had been trying to take her sleeping medication, but in her drunken, exhausted state, she mixed up her medication with Jack's. At that time, Jack was treating his painful syphilis sores with bichloride of mercury, which just so happens to be extremely toxic if ingested. It seems that Olive had grabbed the wrong bottle, poured a dose, and drank it down, but very quickly realized her mistake. Jack scooped up his wife and carried her to the bed. He grabbed the phone and called for an ambulance. Olive was taken to the hospital, and shortly afterward, the story broke in the newspapers. Olive, the most beautiful girl in all of New York, died in the hospital five days later. The story of Olive Thomas's poisoning made the front pages of reputable newspapers and gossip rags alike. Some believed Jack's affairs had finally been too much for her, and that she had died by suicide by deploying the precise medication he was using to treat the infections he'd contracted from his string of infidelities. Others claimed it was Jack himself who had deliberately switched the bottles in order to avoid an expensive divorce. Police immediately launched an investigation into the starlet's death and ordered an autopsy. As it would happen, they quickly came to the conclusion that it was, as Jack had reported, a terrible accident. For all its tragedy, this poisoning is popularly remembered not as something malicious or cruel, but in fact a fairly ordinary accident that happened to someone of extraordinary circumstances. She was known, and she was loved. There were many eyes on the case. But others who don't have the privileges of love and fame, they aren't so lucky. Some tragic accidents, as we will soon see, have more to them than meets the eye. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Thomas Neil Cream knew something about death. He was, after all, coming of age in the Victorian era, at a time where medicine often felt like magic, and the average life expectancy was much shorter. He lost more than one sibling, and would lose his mother shortly before he turned 20. Even though his family was a prosperous one, his father had risen quickly through the ranks of a Canadian shipping company, turning him into one of the city's wealthiest men. Mortality was something that even they couldn't buy their way out of. By the time he was 21, Thomas knew that he couldn't follow in his father's footsteps. He informed his dad that he was going to become a doctor. He enrolled in McGill University in 1872 and earned a reputation among his schoolmates as quite the dandy. He loved flash. He loved style. He was sure of himself, arrogant even, knowing his life would be made easier by his charms and his family money. At McGill, he straddled the line between the living and the dead, dissecting bodies in his anatomy lessons. Most of the cadavers he worked on were probably procured by crooked grave robbers in the middle of the night. It was an unseemly business, but it was considered the only way to unlock the body's secrets, a small price to pay to serve the living. The coursework captivated him, sparking all kinds of intense curiosities. One of the subjects of his fascination came in liquid form. It was chloroform, a new wonder drug that had begun showing up in doctor's offices and pharmacies across the world. It was prescribed to treat just about everything, from insomnia to alcoholism to seasickness and colic. But still, how it worked exactly was somewhat of a mystery. It seemed to slow the body down and put a person to sleep. 
as more doctors began to use it, patients began to die on operating tables. It's said that, on average, one in 3,000 surgical patients died due to its application. But without being totally clear on how it worked, or what a safe dose was, the doctors were at a loss as how to best mitigate fatalities. It was a wildly unpredictable substance, asking all those who dealt in it to partake of a game of chemical roulette. For his part, Thomas was more fascinated by chloroform than any other herb or drug in his arsenal. He wrote his thesis on the effects of chloroform, and graduated from university with honors in March of 1876. Soon after, Thomas met a woman named Flora Brooks, the pretty daughter of a wealthy businessman. He observed all of the proper courtship rituals that were demanded of him, even though he wasn't marriage-minded. He had bigger plans for himself. You might imagine his surprise when Flora told him she was pregnant. He demanded that she get an abortion, and that he be the one to perform it. Soon after, Flora fell sick, and her family called in a local doctor. He immediately diagnosed the consequences of the botched abortion. It was clear to all at her bedside that Thomas was responsible for this whole mess. Flora's father was livid. Thomas and Flora married two days later, under the threat of her father's gun. It wouldn't be long, though, before Thomas skipped town under the pretense of enrolling in a British medical school. Flora was left behind in what we can assume was a flurry of mixed emotions. She never made a full recovery. Flora took to bed, dutifully following a regimen of pills that Thomas mailed her from overseas. When her local doctor asked her where they came from, she told him. He told her to stop immediately. He couldn't identify them. Flora died soon after, succumbing to what appeared to be consumption. But those little pills later aroused suspicion in all who came to hear his story. Thomas Cream arrived back on this side of the pond in 1878. He had a bit of European education under his belt and a need for cash. He settled down in Ontario. It was here he thought that he would set up his new practice. He became an active member in his community, something that had long ago been instilled in him by his father. He was a frequent presence at Sunday morning church services and tutored children in their lessons. His daytime hours would never have suggested that his neighbors should wonder what he was getting up to after dark. His habits had come with him. It was whispered that he was seen out frequenting bars and carousing with prostitutes. He drank, and it seemed that he had picked up a morphine habit along the way. This all was wholly unacceptable for a man of his station. Even still, he was a doctor. His degree earned him clout in the eyes of those who knew him, and created a polished reputation that was sought by folks who wanted to meet him. But all of that respectability that came with his title couldn't save Thomas from what happened in May of 1879. One frosty morning, a young girl tromped outside to use Thomas's backyard privy. When she pulled the door open, she found a woman, dead, slumped cold and stiff against the wall. The woman in the privy appeared to be in her mid-twenties and wore a faded purple dress, and next to her sat a small, uncorked bottle. A doctor was called, who decided that she probably had died before daybreak. He turned his attention to the small bottle and gingerly took it in his hands. He turned it around and lifted it to his nose. He sniffed it and immediately recognized the cloying fumes of chloroform. 
An investigation got underway, and the identity of the woman was discovered. Her name was Kate Gardner, and those who were investigating theorized that she had taken her own life after becoming pregnant out of wedlock. But an inquest was held all the same. The coroner discovered marks on her face, bruising. It was likely, they thought, that this could have been from a chloroform-soaked handkerchief being held tightly against her mouth and nose. They came to the conclusion that she couldn't have done that long enough to kill herself, especially once the chloroform had taken effect. They knew they were looking for a killer, and it didn't take them long to set their sights on Dr. Thomas Crean. Thomas didn't deny knowing this woman. He admitted that she had consulted with him about an abortion, but he did deny having anything to do with the chloroform found at the scene. It was finally declared that she was killed by the administration of chloroform to her by an unknown person. The investigation couldn't prove that he was guilty, but the public opinion was of a different mind. He was extraordinarily suspect in the eyes of his neighbors and the larger community, which effectively put an end to his career in Ontario. Not to be wholly dissuaded, he left for Chicago, a much larger city that he could disappear into and reemerge anew. In Chicago, part of this new trajectory would be a rebranding. He didn't aim for the same air of respectability that he'd had in Ontario, but instead he set up a practice near the booming red light district. At that time, abortion was still illegal in the United States and Canada. Thomas was playing a dangerous, albeit profitable, game. He was a functional extortionist, charging what he liked by capitalizing on the desperation of his patients. At the same time, if something went wrong, the women were out of luck. Seeking secondary medical attention for a botched abortion might cause another doctor to report them for their crime. Because of this underground, illicit system, Thomas could ensure that his patients wouldn't report him. He felt confident that he could continue to operate undetected, unless something went wrong again, which, inevitably, it did. In August of 1880, a resident of an apartment building on West Madison Street noticed the smell of death permeating the next-door flat. The police were summoned and summarily broke down the apartment door. There, they found a young woman lying peacefully on a blood-soaked bed. Her body was in a state of deep decay. The reporting neighbor told police and the attending doctor, one Donald Frazier, that the apartment belonged to an African-American nurse and midwife named Hattie Mack. The dead woman, whose name was Marianne Matilda Faulkner, was said to have been staying with her, with an unknown doctor making frequent house calls. A note left by Hattie in the apartment suggested someone. It was addressed to one Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. When the police finally located Hattie, she started talking. It was a botched abortion, she claimed, and she had done everything she could to save the young woman. She claimed that Thomas was in the business of abortions. She claimed that Thomas had used chloroform on the young woman. But when Thomas was confronted, he suggested that Hattie acted alone, and that he had been the one who was called in to help. Thomas's word won out that day, which would prove to be a grave mistake. Marianne Matilda's body wouldn't be the last associated with the doctor. The next appeared in 1881, and belonged to a domestic servant named Ellen Stack. She had been to see a doctor who had written her a prescription. After taking the pills, she was soon writhing in pain, and soon after that, dead. The same Dr. Donald Fraser was brought to the scene, 
and quickly located the prescribing doctor as one Dr. Thomas Cream. Thomas naturally pointed fingers at the pharmacist, accusing them of making a fatal error. Not long after, a young woman named Alice Montgomery checked into a hotel called Sheldon House on West Madison. She took some medicine with dinner, but collapsed to the floor not long after, screaming in pain. Dr. Seymour Knox was summoned to help her, but it was too late. He declared that she had likely died of strychnine poisoning. During the examination, he discovered that she also recently attempted an abortion, and that it was likely the same doctor who had tampered with her medicine. The prescription was written by Dr. Donald Fraser, and when Fraser was found, he confirmed the prescription was likely an aborificant. However, this wasn't his doing. The prescription wasn't written in his handwriting, and his name was misspelled. Fraser was still interrogated at the inquest, and though he was exonerated, newspapers continued to speculate about his guilt. Others theorized that the guilty party was indeed Thomas Cream, whose office was only a stone's throw from Alice's hotel. They never could prove it, but the abortion, method of killing, location, and time period made Cream the most likely suspect. Still, Thomas carried on with his life and affairs, including romancing a married woman by the name of Julia Stott. They had met when she diagnosed her husband with epilepsy. Cream sold pills that allegedly cured his condition, and Julia picked them up for him regularly. It's only when Julia's husband died with three times the lethal dose of strychnine in his bloodstream did the police turn more seriously to the neighborhood doctor. Thomas had promptly written to the coroner, blaming the pharmacist again for botching the man's prescription and attempting to claim life insurance funds on behalf of his mistress. He was trusting, it seems, that his story would end here, with a happily ever after. But Julia, crushed under the pursuit of law enforcement, turned on her lover, pointing the finger at Thomas. He was charged and convicted, guilty of second-degree murder. He was handed a life sentence. Thomas was furious. He had always gotten everything that he wanted. Money, women, and the power to decide life and death. This wouldn't be the end of his story. He just knew it. It's important to understand that even in all of this, Thomas still had connections. He still had people who loved him and, more importantly in this case, believed in him. And thanks to those people and some very crafty lawyers, Thomas was given a pardon and released in 1891 on the account of good behavior. He returned home to his native Canada, staying some time with his brother, Daniel, to get his bearings. It soon became evident, however, that something was not right with the good doctor. Thomas was increasingly volatile and began lashing out at family members. He was erratic, and soon the family began to discuss what to do with him. It seemed at points that he was exhibiting symptoms of intoxication and withdrawal. It was decided that his old London stomping grounds would be a good place for him to go for a while, and so his brother made plans to help him get set up there. On October 1st of 1891, Thomas wrote a brief note to Daniel to say he'd arrived and was getting settled in Lambeth a neighborhood with a seedy reputation, though he didn't mention that in his letter. He began frequenting the restaurants, shops, and other familiar amusements, including the best spots to hire working women. On October 13th of that year, Ellen, or Nellie Donworth, a local sex worker, 
went off with a tall man. When she arrived back at her rooming house, she began to shake horribly. A medical assistant was brought to examine her and explained that her condition was dire. It appeared that she had all the symptoms of strychnine poisoning. She refused to go to the hospital and begged him to let her die at home. Even still, they decided to bundle her into a carriage, but she would pass before they reached their destination. It's important to remember that the streets of Victorian London were cold, hard places. Kindness was not found there in the twilight hours, nor was it often directed toward the women who worked the streets in life or in death. They were a class of people considered to be a moral scourge, often expendable in the eyes of those who met them. This was the attitude when Jack the Ripper had begun to stalk these very same streets in 1888, and the papers filled up with salacious stories of women brutally murdered. Even still, the investigators couldn't make much of Nellie's story about the tall man, and decided that she had poisoned herself. And they ignored a letter from someone named A. O'Brien, who offered to help in finding the killer for an exorbitant fee. He strangely seemed to know a lot about her death. A week later, a woman by the name of Matilda Clover awoke her entire house with her scream. Matilda jerked violently as she whispered that someone named Fred had given her pills, claiming that they would prevent her from catching any venereal diseases. The doctor who arrived at her bedside didn't believe her story. He believed Matilda to be suffering from delirium tremens. She died the next day, and alcoholism was given as her official cause of death. Soon, another letter arrived to a local doctor, offering help in finding the real cause of Matilda's death, again for a price. The authorities made note, but there was no follow-up. Two more women, friends and boarding house flatmates, would die next, but not before telling those at their bedside of a tall man with a top hat, mustache, and crossed eyes who gave them pills after their sexual encounters. In late October of 1891, young Louise Harvey made a date with a man claiming to be a doctor who wore a black overcoat and a top hat. She later reported that he had the strangest eyes she had ever seen, he told her he was a doctor at the local hospital, and he made note of a few spots on her forehead. He promised to bring her pills when they met the next day. That following day, he brought her roses, and they strolled along the river towards the theater. While there, he handed her two light-colored pills and told her to swallow them immediately. Suspicious, Louise only pretended to put them in her mouth. The man immediately left, claiming he had an appointment at the hospital and that he would meet her later. He never returned. By this point, news of the so-called Lambeth Poisoner was starting to spread, and everyone was taking notice. One or two bodies might be chalked up to the causality of hard living, but so many reports of deaths and near misses could no longer be ignored. The Scotland Yard was starting to sit up and pay attention, making inquiries around the neighborhood and hearing some disturbing stories. An American policeman soon approached Scotland Yard after an unsettling encounter with a local doctor. It seems that this policeman had met a tall man who had taken him on a tour of where all of these women were poisoned and died. With this tip, the eyewitness accounts and the letters, it didn't take long for police to turn their attention to Thomas, who perfectly matched the description of their killer. He was tall, often seen wearing an overcoat, had a mustache, and crossed eyes. 
the detectives approached him and asked for his help, but not before sending for police and jail records from Thomas's time in Chicago. They told him that the killer had been writing letters. Thomas, in his arrogant delusion and willingness to tempt fate, cheerfully provided them with samples of his writing. By the end of their investigation, Scotland Yard was confident that they had their killer, but the handwriting samples and the records of his previous conviction for murder by poison clinched it. Dr. Thomas Cream was promptly arrested. You can imagine Thomas's surprise when Louise Harvey took the stand. Despite his calculations, she had somehow survived, and her testimony was damning, especially since he had casually and confidently mentioned to people that one of the poisoner's victims died at the theater. She was supposed to have died at the theater. But here she was, in London's Central Criminal Court, telling the jurors about her run-in with Thomas, and how he had demanded that she take the pills, and how he insisted on checking her hands to make sure she wasn't holding on to them. She explained to her audience that she and Thomas had planned to join up again that evening, even though she suspected something was strange about him. He never showed up, and she was fairly relieved. Prosecutors made a case that all of the women were poisoned with strychnine, while Thomas's defense insisted he was only linked through gossip. They insisted that there were many men in London who dressed like Thomas, and this was all simply a case of mistaken identity though they had no explanation for Thomas and the Lambeth Poisoner sharing the same crossed eyes. It took only ten minutes for the jury to find Thomas Neil Cream guilty of murder and sentence him to hang. While he was in prison awaiting execution, he finally admitted to his crimes and claimed many others previously unknown. Thomas stepped up to the gallows and into infamy on November 15th of 1892. The city breathed a sigh of relief as a noose was looped around his neck, and the floor fell out from under him. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. A good nurse needs a good bedside manner. They need a warm disposition, a kind spirit, and a confident mastery of any task at hand. Jane Toppin seemed to have this. She was so good-humored and beloved at the Cambridge, Massachusetts hospital where she worked that she received the nickname Jolly Jane. What no one realized, though, were what terrible secrets she kept. 
Jane was born Honora Kelly, the daughter of Irish immigrants, on March 31st of 1854. Her upbringing was a tumultuous one, with her mother dying and father going mad. She and her sister were sent to an orphanage when she was only six. At that time, there were few systems in place to help orphaned children, especially poor ones. The young girls might be trained as domestic servants, which was often the only career choice they had. In November of 1862, Honora was sent to live with the Toppin family in Lowell, Massachusetts, as an indentured servant. They rechristened her Jane and gave her their last name, though they never officially adopted her into the family. Jane seemed to adjust well, and stayed on as a paid servant when she was 18, after being officially released from her indentured status. She lived there until she was 33, when she decided that she would leave to take up nursing. She began her career at Cambridge Hospital in 1887, and though she was adored by her patients, her colleagues didn't take as kindly of a liking to her. They thought she was a gossip and dishonest, a beer guzzler with a crass sense of humor. They kept their distance, and she kept her job. It would go on like this for a good long while, patients came in and stayed for a time to recover. But after a while, the hospital staff noticed that instead of leaving out the front doors, more and more patients were shipped out through the morgue. No one suspected that during her downtime, Jolly Jane was poisoning her patients. Her friendliness was really just a cover for finding her next victim. It's thought that Jane actually despised her patients, specifically the elderly. To this end, she took to falsifying patients' medical records, mixing up drug cocktails and injecting them into their veins. She would experiment with keeping them in the liminal space between life and death, alive but barely conscious, and most likely unaware of the power at play. It's said that doctors were generally so impressed with Jane's diligence on the floor that they recommended her for a position at Massachusetts General Hospital, one of the most prestigious medical facilities in the country. Death followed her there, too, but her undoing wouldn't come from patients dying on her watch, rather for handing out painkillers too liberally. Jane was fired, but the doctors liked her, so they began recommending her as a private nurse for wealthy clients. Out from under the supervision of the hospital, Jane was a free agent. She began earning $25 a week, a mighty sum at a time when a working woman could expect to earn about $5 a week outside of the home. And soon, the bodies began to follow her. First her landlords, then a patient, then a dear friend of hers, then finally her foster sister, who she'd grown up with, all found poisoned. Jane moved herself back into the home she grew up in, with her eyes set on marrying her deceased foster sister's husband, Ormel. Soon upon her arrival, the housekeeper turned up dead. Jane got to work in the home, a familiar space with familiar tasks she had mastered years earlier. She hoped to impress Ormel, who wanted absolutely nothing to do with her. She figured, if he wasn't going to be impressed with her homemaking skills, perhaps he would be impressed with her nursing. She decided to poison him. But when he survived and suspected what had happened to him, Jane was thrown out. She was testing her luck, but saw no reason to stop. She soon took up residence with an elderly Mr. Davis. She killed him and his two daughters, Minnie and Genevieve, who had come to stay for two weeks. And she might have gotten away with it, as she always had, if the daughters hadn't been married. 
Minnie's father-in-law grew suspicious of such a short, violent illness and requested a toxicology exam for his daughter-in-law. The medical examiner discovered Minnie had been poisoned. Local detectives began investigating Jane, and on October 29th of 1901, police arrested her in Amherst, New Hampshire. She went to trial in the summer of 1902. As she took the stand, it all came out. She told the courtroom of the 31 murders she knew about, but said there could be over a hundred. Patients from Cambridge who had lived to tell the tale spoke of Jane taking a perverse pleasure as she hovered beside them in their beds as they fought to survive. Jane was sentenced to life in an asylum. As she got older, she only became more brazen. It said that she could be heard at all hours, yelling down the halls, Get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out in the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. Medical professionals hold an awful lot of power within their domain, and few stop to question their actions or intent. For Jane, the tables were turned. Her life was now in the hands of fellow nurses. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Robin Miniter, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information right here right now find your beautiful new floor at right rug flooring choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee visit rightrug.com that's r-i-t-e-r-u-g.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you 24-month financing is available with approved credit For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.